Hello, and welcome to Bloody Violent History. My name is Tom Ashton, and with my old friend James Jackson, we're going to talk about moments from history that tell us who we are, how we got here, and perhaps where we're heading. And it's often violent and generally quite bloody. In today's episode, we continue our discussion on objects from history, 100 bloody objects. What item are you going to stick in our eye today, Jamie? Object number 10, a monocle, by Gadser, the British stiff upper lip. Mr Chairman, members of the committee, ladies and gentlemen, and not forgetting our two milords, <laughs> I want to thank you all for the marvellous reception you've given to me tonight. And if I went much further on that theme, I don't think I would really be able to control my feelings. All I can say is I thank you all from the bottom of my heart. That was Sir Arthur Harris, Commander-in-Chief Bomber Command in World War II, speaking to the Bomber Command Association in 1977. A man of good humour, iron resolve and the greatest affection for his men. Permission for top lip to wobble, sir? Certainly not. Well said. It's not exactly a state of mind invented by the British. You can draw a line all the way back to the Spartans, handing their boys to the army for training and education at the age of seven. A bit like going to prep school here, terrible food, etc. But without the requirement to ambush and murder slaves working in the fields. Or consider the Romans' enthusiasm for stoicism, devotion to duty and discipline. But the British certainly developed their own special means by which to avoid a case of cold feet, or, in the modern parlance, an acute environmental reaction. Lord Uxbridge at Waterloo famously remarked to Wellington, By gad, sir, I've lost my leg. However, his sang-froid remained intact on the surgeon's table when he was heard to comment, I see the instruments are a little blunt but it is to the Victorians and Edwardians that we can attribute the apotheosis of the British stiff upper lip. After all, the poster slogan, Keep Calm and Carry On, was not actually used in World War II. It wasn't needed. Jamie, what is the stiff upper lip? It's a lot of different things for different people. For some, it's emotional constipation, it's a throwback to empire. For others, it's the great virtues of the British people. I would go with the latter. For me, it's about taking life on the chin and staring death in the eye. It's about imperturbability. It's about resolve, resilience, restraint. And it's about acceptance, acceptance of one's lot, the situation one's in. But it tends to be done by sleight of hand. It has a lightness of touch. There's a sense of humour involved as well. It's not just stiffness but it is about acceptance and dealing with the situation one's in. The Bricklayer's Lament by Jared Hoffnung from his Oxford Union speech. 
A striking lesson in keeping the upper stiff lip is given in a recent number of the weekly bulletin of the Federation of Civil Engineering Contractors that prints the following letter from a bricklayer in Golders Green to the firm for whom he works. Respected sir, when I got to the top of the building, I found that the hurricane had knocked down some bricks off the top. So I rigged up a beam with a pulley at the top of the building and hoisted up a couple of barrels of bricks. When I'd fixed the building, there were a lot of bricks left over. I hoisted the barrel back up again and secured the line at the bottom and then went up and filled the barrel with the extra bricks. Then I went to the bottom and cast off the rope. Unfortunately, the barrel of bricks was heavier than I was and before I knew what was happening, the barrel started down, jerking me off the ground. I decided to hang on. Halfway up, I met the barrel coming down and received a severe blow on the shoulder. I then continued to the top, banging my head against the beam and getting my fingers jammed in the pulley. When the barrel hit the ground, it burst its bottom, allowing all the bricks to spill out. I was now heavier than the barrel and so started down again at high speed. Halfway down, I met the barrel coming up and received severe injury to my shins. When I hit the ground, I landed on the bricks, getting several painful cuts from the sharp edges. At this point, I must have lost my presence of mind because I let go of the line. The barrel then came down, giving me a very heavy blow and put him in the hospital. I respectfully request sick leave. Yes, I remember uh, someone saying there was a padre in the First World War who was tending to the needs of a very badly wounded soldier who was dying. And the soldier looked up at him and said, Padre, am I going to die? And his answer was, uh, you're going to live and die. Essentially, Tom, it's at the other end of the spectrum to a sense of victimhood or entitlement or grievance that seems to permeate so many layers of life and society today. We really are in the shadow of those who fought in the Second World War, our generation, and so we always look to that, for example. So for us, it's really men sitting around waiting for the call to scramble uh, at airfields containing hurricanes and spitfires. It's bomber crews waiting to be briefed on the next raid that they're going to perform. It's people 30 feet below ground at Stalagluf 3 tunnelling Tom, Dick and Harry and getting ready for the great escape. You know, these are the things we remember and refer to. There's also Lord Lovett's Piper who stepped ashore on the Normandy beaches and piped his way up towards Pegasus Bridge to relieve the glider troops that had come in and taken the bridge. So these are the sorts of things that we remember. Yes, well, I mean, it's an easy thing to to fall back on Kipling and his poem, If, but there is some relevance. There is relevance, and that line about if you can keep your head to fall around to the losing theirs, it, it really speaks volumes and it encapsulates exactly what it's about. And I think that there are many things that are really part of the British psyche, certainly of that generation, things like backbone, expectation management, gratitude, a sense of humour, being outward-looking, not being materialistic, but accepting things, and also having a bit of faith. And it's all these things coming together. And it's so natural to the British character. It, it's not something that's imposed. It might have been refined, it might have been structured by schooling, by boarding school in particular, but it's very much there. I mean, I remember an old teacher of mine taught me history when I was sort of 8 to 13, And he died a couple of years ago in his 90s. And no one, none of the boys, none of the teachers knew 
that he had actually been on the Normandy beaches. In fact, they didn't even know he had been shot in the lung on the Normandy beaches and only survived by lying on his injuries so that his other lung didn't fill up with blood. And he was then later wounded in Aden with a shrapnel from a grenade. So he just kept it quiet. It was so understated. And I think that understatement is also part of it. There's no brashness involved. There's no showing off. It is just innate. It's just who we are and certainly who we were. Yeah, we have some, I mean, there are many examples, of course, but uh, one of the famous ones is Colonel John Frost at Arnhem. Uh, when at uh, some moment when they'd been completely beaten into a corner by Field Marshal Walter Model, who was the commander of the uh, German, huge, huge German forces, including the 2nd Panzer Division, versus their 740 British paratroopers, he sent, Model sent his Batman to discuss terms of surrender. And John Frost's comment was, sorry, we don't have the facilities to take you all prisoner. Yes, and my stepfather was actually going on Operation Market Garden but broke his leg in a training jump. He was a para and a surgeon and had landed in Normandy. The person who took his place was very short and had his head blown off. And my stepfather, who was six foot four, uh, was obviously going to be killed as well, but his commanding officer said, well, you're damn lucky, Jackson. You would have had your balls blown off. <laughs> You had to get that one in, didn't you? I did. Yeah. Very good. And then there was, uh, as an example, Colonel Kahn of the Gloucester Regiment. Yes, April 1951. He held out with a battalion of the Gloucesters on Hill 235. And it was very bloody hand-to-hand fighting. And that battalion, 700 men plus, holding out against 11,000 Chinese. It was an incredible situation. And uh, his quote when things had finally collapsed uh, was the following to his brigadier. What I must make clear to you is that my command is no longer an effective fighting force. If it is required that we stay here, in spite of this, we shall continue to hold. And at one stage, apparently, he told the Americans that he was in a spot of bother, which is classic understatement. Yeah, he was, of course, captured by the Chinese, very badly treated. He did however, win the Victoria Cross. Another brave man. And then First World War, Admiral Beatty. Oh, yes. There's something wrong with our bloody ships <laughs> as the warships were blowing up around him. Is that the Battle of Jutland? It was Jutland. And uh, another brilliant understatement by a senior officer in a difficult situation. Sangfroid plus. <laughs> yeah, I love your French. <laughs> OK. So, Jamie, where does it come from? From us, Tom, I think it's a sort of mystical thing. It's just national character. And I think that people can say there's no such thing as a national character. People don't have differences. But yes, they do. Of course they do. National stereotypes exist because there is a kernel of truth in them. You know, We talk about the bloodless efficiency of the Germans, the swaggering arrogance of the French, the flamboyant ill-discipline of the Italians, the can-do attitude of the Americans, the stolidness of the Norwegians. And even the Finnish have a word for it, sisu, apparently, which means persistence. Yes, but I think it's more than just persistence. It's more than just getting through tough times or a situation. There is a kind of lightness of touch. There is 
something so innate about us that it comes through with a sort of humour as well. Otherwise, it would just be unbelievably stiff. And we talked about the Italians, for example, and the national characteristic of flamboyant hill discipline. You wouldn't get a Brit being Mussolini or Berlusconi. It couldn't possibly be a Brit being the captain of the Concordia. You remember the situation. He got off the ship first and refused to get back on board. And there was this amazing transcript uh, that we've all seen of him trying to wheedle his way out of getting back on board. No British captain would behave like that, ever. Yes, his name was Shentine. There was at one moment when he says, do you realise it's dark here and we can't see a thing? And the Coast Guard says, what, do you want to go home, Shentina? It's dark, so you want to go home? Yes, and he started pleading, saying, I have a wife and family. I, you know, it's raining, it's cold, it's hot. there are dead mm. bodies in the water. Yeah. It, it's absolutely staggering. But again, it's the sort of complete lack of empathy for people who are dying around him. Oh, dear, it, there goes our Italian listenership. Yeah, bye. <laughs> but it is... No, I love the Italians. Yes, so do I. But but there is a particular characteristic. Yeah. And you know, you just wouldn't get a Brit captain deserting his ship, abandoning his ship like that. And particularly when there are women and children and families who are dying in the water. And another factor, of course, is the school system. Yes, the school system, as I said, reinforces what's already there. I mean, both of us went to boarding school from the age of seven or eight. And it wasn't the sort of Spartan thing that people who haven't been through that system believe it to be. It's, you know, not everyone is toasted on a fork over a fire. It was, <laughs> it was quite Spartan. It was quite Spartan. We're Certainly probably, the food was Spartan. Yes, we're the last generation to have been brought up on Spam, and that was in the 1970s, and the last generation to sleep on metal beds with horsehair mattresses. Yeah, I remember the dinner lady when I went back to the school, having put, been through it myself, my son had to go through the same thing, and the dinner lady saying, oh, you were all a lot smaller in those days. <laughs> yes, I wonder I, why. You didn't get any fat kids in those days, that's yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> no, we all went back starving and skeletal at the end of term, I remember that. I mean, it's fascinating that you know, our parents' generation had it far tougher, you know, because they, I suppose they were children of empire and quite often they didn't see their parents and the schools were their surrogate parents in a way. But there was a quote by the housemaster of Roger Bushell, who was, of course, Big X, the man who created and developed and facilitated the whole of the sort of great escape from Stalaglo III. His housemaster at Wellington wrote... Something along the lines of, I know his type, he will be beaten often, but will be popular. Yeah, he's a brave man. So school system, and of course there's always the class distinction as well. There is that thing of the school being a structure which created the concept of team spirit, of being all in it together, of getting through some tough times, of, you know, even if you're homesick, that you just concentrated on, on the job in hand. So, uh, you know, it had its role, and I think it still has its role. And again, I think it refined the sort of British character. You know, the, the, the prep school I went to, Cheam, you know, there was a role of honour of over 300 names 
of those who had died, old boys who had died in the Great War. And this was a school that back then would have been about 100 boys. So that's 20 boys a year. That's 15 years worth of boys who were killed in the Great War. It's hardly surprising that the headmaster who had to read out the names of those who had died every Sunday uh, ended up having a mental breakdown. And just like the housemaster in Eton, who ended up in the early 1920s going to the river and drowning himself because he just couldn't cope with the number of boys who had gone on to be killed in the Great War. It scarred so many. And I think that, you know, that idea of sacrifice and loyalty and patriotism and loyalty to the school and to the country was very important. And there's nothing wrong with that. And it's it it builds on the British character that's already there. And to some extent, they were surrogate parents. I mean, you know, it was often, it was true that, you know, my grandfather said that when he was 16, if he'd passed his parents in the street, he wouldn't have recognised them and they wouldn't have recognised him because they were off in India. His father was an engineer. And I mean, even in, in my time, you know, there were stories of fathers turning up in their in their cars and stuffing the wrong boy in the back of the car and driving off a sort of half turn with the wrong boy in the back of the car because they didn't recognise them. And my stepfather, when he was sent from China by his parents who were out there to Marlborough, this was in the late 1920s, his school uniform was actually run up by a Chinese tailor who was using a, a, a plan, using a design from the... 1800s, so you can imagine him turning up at Marlborough in this 200-year-old uniform. <laughs> Very stylish. Well, I, I um, f- at the end of my army career, I was the adjutant at Eton for the CCF there. And um, the more flamboyant household cavalry re- uniforms I wore, the more they enjoyed it. They liked me to see me strutting around in breeches and shiny boots. My God, you should have captained uh, an Italian cruise ship, Tom. Uh, steady on. I mean, and, and on, on a more serious point, you know, they, they had a regular army officer at Eton for a very good reason. You know, it doesn't just supply the world with politicians and merchant bankers. It uh, supplies uh, the country with many soldiers and Eton has won more Victoria Crosses, um, almost double uh, than any other public school in the country. Yes, and I think it lost 1,200 or more um, from the old boys in the Great War. Which is about the uh, an entire five years' worth of boys. Yeah, it's absolutely staggering, isn't it? But but you know, even when we went through that sort of system, there, there was still a sort of humour. And you, know, you can see it from school reports, for example, the sort of way that, that you know, the pupils were viewed. Yeah, it's, uh, it's absolutely Yeah, amazing. your school reports, Jamie, are absolutely atrocious. Yeah. Oh, what is it? Sport, age 10, rugby. He finds the game rather confusing and seems to enjoy it, but seems to enjoy it. Tennis, he has difficulty hitting the ball as it moves towards him. Maybe maybe it's easier to hit it when it's going away from you. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, well, I think, I think Latin, Latin was even worse, actually. Well, Latin, yes, age 13. I've been very disappointed with his work. He seems to be in danger of having excuses for idleness and a readiness to laugh off substandard work. Yeah, like our podcasts. <laughs> We're beginning A plus. <laughs> I like I like I like to think so. At least at least my school report age four was okay, which was uh, he, he he is enthusiastic on the triangle but lacks rhythmic accuracy. <laughs> I like to think my rhythms improved. 
Yeah, that'd be for others to judge. <laughs> My brother, I remember at school, he he got into trouble. He had uh, grown a he grown <laughs> grown a moustache, grown six inches, <laughs> second third, third leg. <laughs> well, I want to know what he grew. Uh, like, Mushrooms in the cellar. Then let's just start again. <laughs> no, I'm keeping all of that. Uh, no, no, you're bloody not. <laughs> my, my brother got into trouble at uh, boarding school for drawing a pair of tits on a mirror. And I remember my father making one of his very rare visits. I think he visited twice while I was there. And the boys hanging out of the window and watching this large, grey, daimler sovereign glide into the front of the school and uh, the chauffeur holding open the door, my father getting out and going in to see the headmaster. And after ten minutes, he got back in the car and drove off without even pausing to say hello <laughs> to us. And apparently what he had done was almost pin the headmaster to the study wall and, sh and said, ''Well, at least he drew a woman!'' <laughs> Yeah, I like the accent, Jamie. Yeah, that tells you, us everything. There you go. <laughs> so we talked about the school side. What about the class side, the class dimension? Well, again, I think it can be exaggerated. There is an element, and it's it's easy to parody, but very hard to define, you know, as I've said about the, the British stiff upper lip. And you know, I remember in Monty Python's Meaning of Life, when death turns up and tells everyone at a d dinner party that they're dead, the response from one of the guests is... Well, that's cast rather a gloom over the evening. And I think in terms of class, I think there's there's an element of not wanting to embarrass oneself, not wanting to show oneself up, not wanting to make a scene in front of either the staff or the men. Here is an extract from the diaries of Chips Channon. The 7th of November. Some chaps dined, Hector Bolitho, Raymond Mortimer and Bill Tufnell, and towards the end of the dinner, a terrific barrage began... The house shook, but Hector nevertheless remarked that he had never had such a lovely evening. It was his first night out, really, since the Blitz, and he remarked how soothing it was to sit and dine by candlelight drinking Chateau Le Quem, a change from his usual sausages and beer at the Air Ministry. Just after nine, we left the dining room, and as my four guests proceeded, still carrying their brandy glasses into the morning room, there was an immense crash and a flash like lightning. That was somewhere near. Let's go and see if we can see anything, Bolitho suggested. I protested that there were usually two bombs in quick succession and that we had better wait a moment. As I spoke, I heard the sound of breaking glass and there was a brief pause. No one was frightened, but I heard the voice of Harold the footman shouting, We've been hit! At this we all rushed into the hall and were at once half-blinded by dust and smoke. A second later, as if we had invoked the devil, out of the darkness sprang an ARP warden whom I recognised as of all people the Archduke Robert. He was followed by a woman and several others armed with pickaxes. They had made their way through the ruined portico to dig us out, and they seemed amazed, even a touch disappointed, to find us intact and calm. But you've had a direct hit, one of the wardens insisted. Are there any dead below? I said I did not think so, and surprised by my own calm, I led them into the morning room, gave them drinks, and rang the bell. Lambert appeared, and I asked him if everyone was all right downstairs. He nodded and I told him to fetch more tumblers and drinks. I nearly said the crew twenty, but just didn't. We then stood about, and the wardens put out the electric lights, as by now we had no windows and the shutters had been blown. I lit a candle and introduced my motley guests, the Archduke with his Habsburg chin, looking lanker than ever, his female companion, whom I discovered to be Mrs Harold Peake, several chauffeurs from the Muse, etc. 
an odd group. So I think that has carried through in terms of you know, the British military, for example. You know, it is the need to be imperturbable, to, to not be knocked off from your perch, to not be moved or at least show that you're uh, upset or been undermined in any way. It's just maintaining your cool. But also it's uh, the, the sort of mystery ingredients such as uh, the love of gardening and cricket and dogs and hunting and the Church of England and, and the monarch. Yes, I think it bubbles up through the soil. It, it, is, it is, as I said, it's not a fake thing. I think it's really who we are or certainly who we used to be before sort of self-obsession and wobbliness and issues got into the mix. Steady you know? on. We don't want to go down that rabbit hole again. <laughs> so, Jamie, we have many role models from the Victorian and Edwardian period for heroes. Yes, we do, and they're important. And it's how society sees itself or wants to view itself. So there are always those that we're going to put on a pedestal and those that we think are the... Uh, exemplars of what we'd like to be and what we'd like our society to be or our children to be. And so it was very important, certainly to the Victorians, to come up with these uh, tragic figures and uh, sort of hero worship them. You know, we need our heroes. And so if you look, for example, to uh, Alexander Burns, the governor of Kabul, in 1841, he was a man cut off in the city. He refused to leave. There was a popular mob, a sort of uprising. He was stuck with a few officers, his brother and a major, in a house in Kabul with the British army camped just outside the walls because he wanted to stand. He wanted to be there, thinking it was important to have a presence. The mob turned up. He went out onto the balcony to try and reason with them, with Major Broadford. The Major was shot standing next to him, at which point Burns realised that the game was up and he wasn't going to get out of this alive, particularly as the mob believed that the British Army Treasury was attached to his house, so they weren't going to go anywhere. By this stage, they had set fire to the stables as well. Burns's brother, Charles Burns, went out, to attack the mob on his own and managed to kill six of them before he was hacked to pieces. The bodyguards were already dead by this stage and Burns tied a black handkerchief around his eyes and stepped out. He didn't want to see where the blows came from and he was stabbed to death and beaten to death and they then took... The three heads, the mob took the three heads, paraded them on pikes through the streets and set them up in a square in Kabul. So it was a pretty grisly affair. In the same way that Gordon of Khartoum in 1885, he refused to leave Khartoum and the Mahdi army uh, encircled him and he went down fighting. He came out of his home, his residence, and went down the steps with a cane in one hand and a pistol in the other. And again... His head was cut off and paraded around in front of the Māori army as well. So they all had pretty grisly ends and they all sort of really bled into the Victorian narrative of colonialism, empire and sacrifice. You know, putting 
the common good or the cause in front of oneself. And that was a, a very strong and important image and storyline for the Victorians to get across. And then in January 1852, the Birkenhead. Yes, a, a terrible fiasco, but again, one that was elevated to the level of heroism and really touched the Victorian psyche, really. And it was a paddle steamer commandeered, really, to carry troops down to the Eighth Khosa War, another colonial venture. And I think she had about 600 troops on board and she was heading down, uh, got as far as Cape Town and Simon's Bay. And there were horses on board, there were some women and children on board, and she hit a rock and started to sink. Because they wanted to get the women and children of the lifeboats first and didn't want to see any panic ensue and didn't want to see that lifeboat overturned. Like the Titanic later on, there weren't enough boats to get people off. They were three miles offshore. So the women and children got in the boat and the men just stood basically to attention on the stern deck. The ship hit another rock and split in two. There wasn't a sound. The ship went down, and it was only when the men hit the water that the struggle began. And Kipling made it famous later by talking about the Birkenhead drill. Uh, the concept of women and children first started really then with the Birkenhead. Of those men that ended up in the water, some 500 of them ended up being eaten by sharks and dying from exposure. It was a basically a 12-hour swim to the shore three miles away, and uh, very few men made it. Oddly enough, I think eight of the nine horses managed to get to the shore. But it was a classic example of stoicism, really. And, and it was such an amazing story that even the king of Prussia, Frederick IV, had the account of the Birkenhead read to all his regiments in the Prussian army. Uh, as an example of British courage and what everyone should be trying to emulate. So the Birkenhead is certainly up there as an example of the British stiff upper lip and what the Victorians were trying to encourage. Well, and the Prussians wouldn't do something like that lightly. So, uh, But also, um, it doesn't have to be times of, of war and combat. I mean, in 1912, we've got uh, Scott and his expedition to the South Pole. Yes, it was... Uh, a disaster, but a, in a way a triumphant disaster. And again, it showed the endurance and the ability to deal with hardship that the Edwardians, like the Victorians, so admired. And they were an extraordinary team. If you think that Oates was a cavalryman, he wasn't a, an Antarctic explorer at all. Of course, everyone knows the story of him saying, I'm just going out for a walk, I may be some time. Ultimately, when Scott died, he left a diary behind. And it's very poignant and very moving. And I think it speaks not just to Victorians, but to people today in terms of what men and women can do in terms of dealing with terrible hardship. Every day, we have been ready to start for our depot 11 miles away. But outside the door of our tent... It remains a scene of whirling drift. I do not think we can hope for any better things now. We shall stick it out to the end, but we are getting weaker, of course, and the end cannot be far. 
It seems a pity, but I do not think I can write any more. R. Scott, last entry. For God's sake, look after our people. 29th of March, 1912. And in the same year, there was the Titanic. Yes, we all remember the image and the stories of the men left behind in the first-class lounge, having put their women and children on board the lifeboats, getting into their evening wear and having a last drink before the ship went down. Another thing, the stiff upper lip does not require to have a moustache on top of it. The women of that time were also pretty heroic. Yes, it cut across class and it cut across gender. And throughout history, there have been some incredibly brave women who have done extraordinary things and have displayed amazing calm. And there's so many stories to choose from. Uh, There's a friend of mine whose uncle during the war was uh, a little boy and he was having tea at the Ritz with his nanny and a bomb fell a couple of blocks away and plaster dust came down on them and he ducked and said, Nanny, what's that? She said, it's a bomb, dear, now sit up straight and finish your tea. (laughs) So, again, there is a particular type and there's a friend of my family's who's very grand old mother once received a dirty phone call. I mean, this was unheard of. It was sort of back in the late 60s or early 70s, and she listened completely impassive for about five minutes, listening to the heavy breathing and everything else, and then just said, young man, if you knew how old and fat I was, you wouldn't want to fuck me at all, and put the phone down. <laughs> Wasn't at all shocked by it. And, and you know, there's so many other examples. I mean, there was a, a great uh, woman who worked for MI6, She became a legend. She had been out in Africa. I can't remember what sort of mission she was on. But she was confronted by a mob of Africans coming down this mud track, and she was in her car. And had she remained in her car, she would absolutely have been cut to pieces. With total coolness, she got out of the car, popped the bonnet, uh, opened the bonnet, and started tinkering with the engine the sort of anger and rage of the mob completely dissipated as they stopped to help her uh, start the engine, start the car, and gave her a push and sent her on her way. It takes a great deal of nerve and coolness to get through that. And if that is an example of the British stiff upper lip, I don't know. And uh, we've talked about this before in our 20th century heroines, but the extraordinary thing often with the women is that they come from very sheltered backgrounds often. I mean, there's this wonderful book which you actually uh, gave me some time back, The Siege of Krishnapur by J.G. Farrell. A brilliant book. What do they ladies in that get up to? Oh, well, they're stuck in Krishnapur in the British residency at the time of the India mutiny and they can't get out. And, of course, the cannons have run out of ordnance. They they don't have any cannonballs or grape shot or anything like that. So there's the most brilliant description of how the, the women stuff everything they can into the cannon. They've got powder, but they haven't got any cannonballs, so they stuff it full of anything they can. And there's a vivid description of how after they fire it, there's one mutinous sepoy staggering around with a, a pair of gilt 
<laughs> sugar tongs sticking out of his chest. Yeah. And there's another description of a, of a large Sikh having his head taken off by an unsmiling bust of Queen Victoria. It's a brilliant detail. <laughs> it's a great book. It's a brilliant book. And, I mean, my, my grandmother, who was born in 1914 and was uh, an orphan by the time she left school, I mean, she was given a list of do's and don'ts for girls. It, it, it's so innocent that how they ever managed to end up surviving uh, these extreme situations is is remarkable because, I mean, they, they, they really weren't told anything at school. No, but I think you have to remember about anything before the modern age is a period in which not only were menfolk dying in war, you know, two wars, but people were dying in childbirth all the time. People were dying from Spanish flu. You know, I mean, forget yeah. corona... People were just used to mortality in a way that they're simply not now. Yes, and and clearly the this list didn't really give her much of a guideline because she came back to her her guardian and said she'd found a very nice flat in London in Shepherd's Market. <laughs> <laughs> and she was never allowed to move in. Tom, what was the title of it? Because that alone makes me laugh. Well, it was a list of don'ts for girls. No do's, just don'ts. It's a pamphlet issued by the National Vigilance Association of Great Britain. You can imagine the blue stockings running that show. It's probably like the Temperance Society or something. Yeah, <laughs> you'd want them on your side. Don't look at a man on the train. Something like that, isn't it? Oh, it's yeah, that's it, yes. You, you, all sorts of warnings about trams and trains. <laughs> <laughs> very, very dangerous. Yeah. OK, Jamie, we've done the what and the where. What about the why? Why does the British stiff upper lip exist or why has it existed? I, th I, I think, Tom, for so many reasons. You know, we've already talked about it being innate that it's part of the British character, it's what we like. And, and it goes hand in hand also with our piratical streak, though, that we're not going to be perturbed by setback. You know, we do have a stoical aspect to us. I mean, like the Blitz, that, you know, it's not going to dent morale. One of the reasons, you know, certainly historically, is that we've never had a large standing army We've never had a huge civil service abroad. We, we, we ran India with two or 3,000 civil servants. So we have to have a lightness of touch. We have to get on with people. And there has to be an understanding of how to behave and not letting the side down rather than just going on discipline and orders. You know, we weren't like the Prussian army or the German army later on, which was large, you know, that had sort of rules everywhere that liked regulation. We had a conscript army. We had civilian armies. You know, we look at the people in the First and Second World War. They simply had an understanding of what was expected of them and how to behave and that courage was something to be embraced, that you did your bit. And sometimes it could go too far. Sometimes, if it was too sort of rigidly applied then there was a lack of empathy. You know, people thought that post-traumatic stress or shell shock, as it was called then, was often just an example of uh, lack of moral fibre rather than what it was. But at the same time, at least people understood that this is how you behave, this is what is expected of you, rather than simply being given commands. 
and we like our characters. We expect our characters to be larger than life, and we expect them to be brave. A great example for me is General Frank Massavi, who commanded British troops who are basically cooks and clerks and uh, the, the sort of admin staff in the admin box in Burma when we held out against the Japanese and beat the Japanese for the first time. And there's some amazing descriptions of him standing there briefing his officers with shells coming in from the Japanese with a machine gun and tracer and setting off the ordnance depots uh, in his area. And so these shells are going off all around him. His men are flinching and desperate to get into slit trenches. He's just standing there, not even noticing what's going on around him. It, it's just a fantastic example, again, of the British stiff upper lip. Yeah, and of course the great example of in uh, from the Boer War, First and Second World War, was... Adrian Carton de Wyatt, who um, had an, in, an insane career as a soldier. And he was amazingly brave. But, I mean, he, he took the damage. I mean, he was shot in the face, the head, the stomach, the ankle, the leg, the hip and the ear. He was blinded in his left eye. He survived two plane crashes. He tunneled out of, out of a prisoner of war camp. And he tore off his own fingers when his doctor refused to amputate them. It's fantastic, isn't it? it uh, only two plane crashes. Churchill had four. I, Churchill adored him. He used to put him in the back of photographs with other, you know, when he was having conferences <laughs> to surprised. impress the locals. Uh, he was he was a he was a brilliant man, and and one of the things he did, he uh, when he went off to fight uh, before the First World War. Uh, in Afghanistan and Africa, he always called it playing in the nets before the big match. So he knew what was coming. He certainly did. He's, he had an idea that it was coming, and I think he reveled in it. He was looking forward to it. Yeah, he was. An un I mean, he didn't actually carry a revolver in the, when he went over the top in the First World War because he was afraid of, he might lose his temper and shoot his own people. So he used to take a walking stick and a bag of bombs. Yes, he's an absolutely brilliant man. And as he hadn't got an, he only had one arm, he had to pull the pin out with his teeth and throw them at the Germans. And um, he even banned his soldier-servant Holmes from carrying a rifle because he'd been annoyed by him for taking pot shots at German aeroplanes. Well, someone had to carry his <coughs> cup of tea. <laughs> but but, but the, other, the other story I remember, two stories I, I, I absolutely <coughs> love about him, was that uh, I think when he was interviewed by the army, he bought himself a glass eye so the army wouldn't realise he had lost his eye. And after the interview, having got through it, he then threw his eye out of the car window. <laughs> he dispensed with that one. And I remember when he was caught, I think he was a prisoner of war in the Second World War. Yeah, he was, and, yeah. yeah and he, he disguised himself in it as an Italian peasant and I think managed to be on the run for eight days w w without a hand and without an eye. I should think the Germans actually probably loved him. He's just a sort of person like, like uh, Douglas Bader that they thought was quite the hero. Yeah, and I think he swore like a trooper. Mm. But, I mean, Bard is another one, you see. And, and you know, we think of, sort of the prison camps, prison of war camps that a lot of these guys ended up in. Everyone has that romantic notion of horseplay. And, yes, there was horseplay and there was joking. And, and it completely confounded the Germans. You know, the fact that in Kulditz, for example, the, the Brits kept on water bombing them. And they absolutely hated it. But... 
the thing that people forget is that so many of these people were being starved. I mean, you know, in Stalagluf three, I think the daily ration for a prisoner was something like four slices of bread and perhaps a potato. I mean, they were absolutely half-starved. And Roger Bushell, the creator of The Great Escape, by the time he got to Stalaglow III, he had lost 40 pounds. I mean, he, he was skeletal compared to what they all had been. And these weren't fat men. I mean, these were pretty skinny guys before they even arrived in the prison of war camps. Well, I stayed with my mother's godfather in uh, South Africa, after I left school, and he'd been a prisoner of war in Starleg 3 or 13. He was uh, wherever the wooden horse was. He was in that one. When I, The only thing I really knew how to cook then was uh, scrambled eggs and baked beans. And um, I sort of announced that this was my contribution to the household uh, kitchen. And he was absolutely thrilled. He, we, we lived off beans and scrambled eggs, small quantities of beans and scrambled eggs, um, for several months because he had no stomach from his time in the camps. Yeah, well, my stepfather remembered that re- relieving Changi Jail, actually, that people were just dying because no, no one had any concept that, that no one could take on the food that they were being given when they were relieved from the jail. It, it was absolutely horrific. And yet they didn't make a big thing about it. No, they didn't. They didn't. And again, you know, you and I have both known so many people who fought in the last war. And, you know, it's it's extraordinary how little they talked about it or boasted or anything else. So, Jamie, is the British stiff upper lip still alive today? In patches, I think, Tom, yes, it is. Because, luckily, it's not alien, it's not something foisted on us, it is who we are. There's still examples coming up all the time. Uh, During the Falklands War in 1982, when HMS Sheffield was hit, there was a sub-lieutenant, Carrington Wood, who started getting everyone singing Always Look on the Bright Side of Life as the ship sank. So, Always I, look on the bright side of life. Yes. And you remember the line, life's a piece of shit when you look at it. <laughs> Again, yeah. it sort of summarizes. It's summarized. poetry. It poetry. is poetry in motion. <laughs> but... You know, so it was alive then. And I don't think it's just the military. And in 1982 as well, when that British Airways flight uh, went through a volcanic dust cloud in the Far East and the engines cut out and the captain had to glide for 20 minutes, 80 miles, I think it went, without any power. You, know, I think you've got what he said to the passengers there or paraphrasing it. Oh, yes. <laughs> I was reading, say. Uh, I do indeed. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your captain speaking. We have a small problem. All four engines have stopped. I trust you are not in too much distress. There you go. I think I'd be in distress. Apparently, some woman started screaming in the cabin and uh, uh, above the yelling and general melee at the back, <laughs> they, they could hear a man's voice saying, will you stop making such a scene in front of this rabble? That wasn't the volcanic dust cloud that was uh, nicknamed Gordon Brown because it was dark and gloomy. Well, I don't know whether that was before his time, I think. It probably, oh, may, oh, yes, yeah, 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 it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, that was another one when the Icelandic cloud yeah, yeah, came was, in yeah, compared yeah, yeah, to yeah, the yeah, volcano. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then there's Andy McNabb, who's captured with the other SAS guys in Bravo 20 during the first Gulf War. And they had a standing joke every time they were taken off to be beaten up and tortured by the Iraqis of... Uh, well, at least we can't get pregnant. 
So I think it is still alive and well. And even in the Falklands, there was that para who lost his leg and he went, oh, I've lost my leg. And the medic said, no, you haven't. It's in the tree over there. So So it's humour, understatement and acceptance. I think it is. And and you ask, is it still alive? Well, I think we're still irritated by people who don't man up. And I think we have a choice. I mean, either we are drawn to and prefer the company of those who roll along with life and who do it cheerfully and take setback in their stride, or we are confronted by people who are self-obsessed, whinging, tedious asses. So is it alive? Yeah, in parts, Tom, but I think it's an important part of the British character. And I think we need to preserve it because it will get us through bad times ahead, which are always there. Indeed. Let's hope that buried under the self is me culture and neuroticism. There remains that lair, that core of grit. I hope so. We're going to need it. And Jamie, do we have a postscript? I thought what we would do, Tom, is actually leave the last word to bomber and those in his audience who were of course his bomber crews from the 1940s because they really say it far more eloquently than we ever can thank you jamie thanks tom Jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow.